session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening, welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Holakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is Afro-Iran, um, and this is a book, it's mostly a book of photographs um, by Mahdi Esai, um, who was a German, uh, Iranian-German photographer, and so in the United States, it's Black History Month, um, and so I actually thought this would be a good time, I mean, it'd always be a good time to talk about the black history of Iranians, but also history, present, and future. And so um, the book, as I said, is primarily photographs from what I saw, a few very short texts, but I wanted to make that the focus of next week's show. So that's Afro-Iran. Looking forward to reading it, looking at those photographs, and sharing the book with you on next week's show. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is Think Again by Adam Grant. And um, this is a, a really, really important book for uh, people to read. I'm so glad I read it. I was excited to read it. It just came out about a week ago. Um, and the, again, the title is Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. And the answer to that, the power of knowing what you don't know, the truth is we don't know a lot and we don't know or we know a lot less than we think we do or we don't know a lot more than we think that we don't know. Uh, and so this book, Think Again, is in a way an invitation to recognize that we need to think about what we know and don't know. And also, I think we need to think about how we think about these things of what people know, knowledge, how much someone uh, should know about something to consider them knowledgeable, um, or how much people can know about certain things. Because what I think is is an interesting point, I've mentioned this a few times recently, that when you look online, you'll see people talk about really complex social issues from abortion, gun control, opening schools during the coronavirus, how to handle the coronavirus, vaccines, vaccine rollout, all these types of things, with such confidence and they think that that confidence shows how smart or right they are, when really we have to recognize we can't be that confident in these types of issues. And actually, uh, the more you actually understand the issues, the more you recognize you can't be so certain about this is the only way to do something, or this is very easy, you do it just like this. So I think this book is very important because, um, as he puts it, a few reasons. One is the knowledge is expanding and multiplying so much quicker than ever before, and it'll keep happening in that way. And so even if you are knowledgeable in a certain field, first of all, you can never know anything or everything about a certain field. Um, even if you did somehow know everything or almost everything, the knowledge would keep being added to that. So if you think, well, I know everything about, if someone tells me I know everything about biology, that actually tells me that individual doesn't really know 
what really biology is all about because they probably don't get how much there is to know. And they don't really probably know what it means to know something. Because to say you know everything about a field is just showing that you're missing the point on multiple levels. Unfortunately, we have some misunderstandings and misconceptions about what it means to be an expert or knowledgeable about something. And so we sometimes think we should look for someone who says they know everything about something or so who so confidently talks about an issue as if it's simple when really it's much more complex. And we take the way that they talk about it as evidence of how brilliant and knowledgeable and smart they are rather than recognizing that they are failing to recognize the complexity of the issue. And also they are doing that either, as I say, to sell us something like a product or sell us themselves that I figured out this complex issue because I'm so smart. No, usually the case is they want you to think they figured it out. So you think they're so smart or so you buy their product or like and subscribe or do all those things, which I think I did at the top of this show. So I have to be aware of what I say. So um, I think just having a paradigm shift about uh, what we think about what it means to know things and be knowledgeable is very important. And this book, I think, invites us to to do that and to look at that. Um, so throughout the book, he actually was, I think, interesting, brought up different points that were kind of facts I didn't know about. So again, it makes you think again to rethink what you think you know. For example, you know, there's that old analogy of a frog in boiling water. Maybe you've heard it before that they say, if you put a frog in boiling water, it's going to jump out. This is if you want to cook a frog. But what you do is you put a, a frog in normal water and you slowly warm the temperature and the frog won't realize the temperature's boiling or getting hotter until it's too late and then the frog dies. And this is at times used as an analogy that we better be careful about um, when things are changing, that they might change slowly, but this is how they're going to get us. Eventually, they're going to burn you, which there could be truth to that, but there isn't truth to that analogy. Um, he talks about in the book, Adam Grant, that actually, if you put the frog in boiling water, it might not be able to jump out because it gets burned. And if you warm the water up, actually, they will jump out. They don't just wait there um, and, and get uh, slowly burned over time. So as he said, it's not that the frogs are the ones having the issue. We have an issue that we've heard something and repeated and we think we know. And I think that's something that happens a lot. We think we know something because, well, I think I heard it somewhere. People have said it to me or people start saying it over and over again. Or sometimes it's a saying or it rhymes, you know, certain things like that. And we think it's true when we don't really know. And so this book is inviting us to rethink what we think we know. When you think you're so certain of something, go look a little bit deeper about it, rethink it. And it's actually not weak to rethink think things. Um, it's actually very strong. And I'll get into that a little bit later. Um, you know, also there, like another one of those things that we think we know uh, is the first instinct fallacy. Uh, I remember hearing this, and I, me and actually Parham, my brother, we talked about this recently, that we don't really think it's true, but you've maybe heard people will say, if you're taking a test, always stick with your first answer. It's the right answer. If you think of changing it, don't do it. You're going to change to the wrong answer. And as he says, we have to look at that, and researchers have looked at that, and they found that it doesn't appear to be the case. Actually, when people change their answers, when they're uncertain and they change their answers, they were more likely to switch to a correct answer rather than to a incorrect answer. And so um, we think this is true because we've heard it. And also there are some things we like to, as it's called the first instinct fallacy, we like to think that if we uh, 
think something or that's our guess. We have to go with our gut instinct. And I think there can be a lot of truth to things like intuition, being in touch with what you're feeling that can be very valuable, but it doesn't mean it's always right. Uh, that's another one of these things we have to sometimes recognize is almost every issue is more gray than black and white. So it's not that always trust your first instinct. It's never wrong. Unfortunately, it's not that simple. And of course, it doesn't always mean you have to rethink it. It's always going to be right to change it. It's more nuanced than that. So we want to keep that uh, in mind. Um, you know, another interesting thing is we would think that people who are more intelligent would have an easier time rethinking what they think. But that's not true. Uh, he had a quote. It said, mental horsepower doesn't guarantee mental dexterity. So just because you're very intelligent, it doesn't mean you're going to be good at changing your mind, actually, or uh, changing your mind when you get new evidence. Uh, unfortunately, you might even be better at tricking yourself into thinking the same things, uh, believing the same things that you did, because you can find a way to try to make things make sense. Uh, I think this is interesting. I also think Another reason why smart people might have a harder time with this is that so much of their identity oftentimes is attached to being smart and being right. So they don't want to have to acknowledge that they were wrong. So they'll find a way to keep proving that they were right, even though they weren't, because it means so much to them to keep that um, sense of being correct, putting too much value into that. So when we're trying to look for information, as I've uh, I put a quote up from my own in a way of when we do research, most people aren't doing research. They just research for what they already believe to be true. And we're seeing that happening right now, especially with things like social media where people who are conservative are going to look at conservative outlets and conservative news and have conservative friends, people who are liberal, same thing. And we, we think we're finding more and more of the truth, but really we're just looking for what we want to look for. And there's two uh, psychological type of biases that relate to this. One of them, to me, they're very related and overlap, but one is the confirmation bias. You've probably heard of that one before. It's seeing what we expect to see. And the other is desirability bias, seeing what we want to see. So they're very much overlapped. But so when we're looking for information, we find information that seems to confirm it, even if it's not exactly what we uh, all the information will find the parts that confirm what we want, and we'll also we'll see what we desire to see, what we expect to see, um, or we, what we want to see, excuse me, we'll, we'll find. And so people are doing that when they usually say, oh, I'm researching into this topic. And that's unfortunately a problem. So, um, you know, there's interesting quotes even or ideas about, for example, presidents. What made the best, best presidents? And what was the greatest predictor of how presidents did was their intellectual curiosity and openness. And I thought that was interesting because sometimes when we think of leadership roles like a president, we think we need to find someone who knows and always knows and sticks to their guns and keeps things uh, the same way and, and doesn't change their course. Of course, there can be importance to having some convictions but not holding on to them too tightly because when you get new information, if you don't change your mind, you are being pretty dumb if you don't change your mind with new information. And that's what people do a lot of times or we think we are supposed to do. I shouldn't be a flip-flopper. I shouldn't be uh, changing my mind so much. I should stick to my guns. But if we're not changing our mind to new information, that's being pretty stupid. You're not paying attention to all 
the information. We all fall into that trap where we don't want to change our mind. And as he puts it, we can uh, try to adopt the mindset of a scientist, which means that we're trying to gather information. And actually, scientists, they don't tend to talk about things as truth. They talk about things more in the sense of the evidence supports this. They're a little bit more tentative in what they state. They don't take them as absolute truths. They have theories and they have evidence that supports the theories. And then once they have that, they think this is how it seems to be. But they're open to getting new information and updating those beliefs and theories. Now, scientists by profession don't always act as scientists in mindset in the sense that even when they get new information, very often they don't change their mind. It could be hard for them. They're still human beings that have a lot of these biases that are discussed in the book or these issues that come up in the book. So we see that oftentimes scientists will have a theory and some scientist becomes prominent. And when he or she sees evidence that goes against their theory, they can reject it or find reasons to poke holes, as he says, uh, become a prosecutor. So they can uh, tend to... Uh, find a reason why that study doesn't make sense or the evidence doesn't seem to support what they are, um, you know, they already believe that we can get that. Imagine if your name is so-and-so and it's the so-and-so theory of whatever, you feel threatened if someone challenges that, which I will talk about later as well. So we have to be open to, to hearing new things, which means we have to be open to saying, maybe I am wrong. Maybe I made a mistake. And he shared an interesting story from Daniel Kahneman, who is a Nobel Prize winning psychologist. I think his Nobel Prize went in related to economics with research he did with Amos Tversky. And Adam Grant, the author of the book, was giving a talk. And after the talk, Daniel Kahneman came up to him and said, you know, the way you explained this point, I actually thought it was I didn't think it was that way. And he said uh, his quote was, that was wonderful. I was wrong. And so he talked about in the book this joy of being wrong, which we don't think about usually as a joy. We think that we always want to be right and we should always be right. But actually recognizing that we can find joy in being wrong, that it can actually be a good thing to be surprised by something we're learning something new. So after the break, I'm going to continue on this book. Again, it's Think Again by Adam Grant. Talk about this concept he he. Uh, puts out throughout the book of confident humility. Sometimes we might think of these things as opposite. You can't be confident and humble or show humility, but actually that's something we might want to strive towards and look for in others. So I'll continue talking about the book Think Again by Adam Grant. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book Think Again by Adam Grant. And before the break, I mentioned this quality of confident humility that he talked about. So in this chapter, the chapter is called The Armchair Quarterback and the Imposter. So there's something called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is a really interesting uh, concept in psychology, which is essentially that people that lack conf- uh, competence, they tend to be the most confident in what they do or they're overconfident which is kind of strange so the people that are the worst at doing something or not very good at something they're more likely to be overconfident and this relates to what i was talking about before so this is called the dunning kruger effect um and it's a pretty interesting psychological concept that we see and oftentimes it's that when we don't know enough about something we don't realize how much we don't know 
But if you barely know something about something, you know a little bit, you might think, oh, I get that. I know what that is. And related to this, there's something called uh, the misconception or myth of explanatory depth, which is that sometimes we think we know something better than we do. But once someone asks us to explain it, we realize we, we don't. So if someone says, do you know how a toilet works? And you think, yeah, of course, you know, yeah, I get it. And then you say, explain it. And people, you know, they have some ideas and they think, but most people will not be able to explain to you the mechanics of what makes a, to- a home toilet work uh, or a bicycle even. They kind of might have some ideas, but they don't really get it. But we think we do. So again, we tend to think we know things better than we do. But the Dunning-Kruger effect is this very, uh, in a way, maybe dangerous sounds bad, but it can be in the sense that people who don't really know how to do something, they overrate how good they are. And and this creates something that he calls the armchair quarterback, um, or this concept where people who Sometimes, you know, you'll be watching sports with someone and they think, oh, if I was there, I would have thrown the ball to this person. Or if I was the coach, I would have done this. It would have been so easy. And very often it's actually the people who know the least about the sport who think it would be so easy. But people who understand it better know that it's a lot more complex than to think, oh, it's just easy if it's a football game, for example. Just throw it all the way down every time. I've heard people say that when they watch American football. If they don't know it very well and they might be falling prey to the Dunning-Kruger effect, that why don't they just throw it all the way down to the end? Well, once you know the game a little bit better, you understand that if you just throw the ball all the way down, you have less of a chance of catching it yourself. It's a very risky play of catching it, but also it's very possible the other team intercepts the ball, which is is bad for your team as well. So that what seems like the easy strategy is actually not the right one. And you see that there's much more complexity to the game. So the Dunning-Kruger effect can lead to this armchair quarterback where your confidence is more than your competence. So you think you're better than you actually are. The opposite of this is the imposter syndrome. So maybe you've heard of this before. The imposter syndrome is when we, actually it's the opposite, our competence, how good we are, is more than our confidence. So we don't think we're very good. And we see this in uh, lots of different environments, but especially things like, let's say you're starting law school. And if you're in law school, you walk into law school and you think, look at all these smart people. They're all, you know, they know what they're talking about. They probably know so much about the law. I'm new to this. Even some nice people will think, you know, the school maybe made an accident letting me in because I'm not that knowledgeable. uh, And we think we were an imposter. We don't belong in this place when we actually do. And so many things can contribute to this. And one of them is when you're sitting in a class and you feel your internal anxiety of what is the professor talking about? Do I get it? Will I be ready for the test? You look at the class and everyone looks calm, but that's because you don't know what's going on inside of their heads and inside their bodies to realize that most of them or probably all of them are anxious too. Um, and they're also worried. This is also what happens when you're sitting in a lecture and you look around, you think everyone's getting it and you're not. Finally, you get the courage to raise your hand and ask a question. And you, you see, you know, eight other people kind of groan like, oh, thank God you said something. I didn't know what the professor was talking about either. So we very often underestimate. And this is what could be part of the imposter syndrome, where you think your competence is less than your uh, your competence, how good you are, is m- more than your confidence, well, how you believe, how much you believe in yourself. And he says, we want to try to find some middle ground, um, something we can call confident humility. So in confident humility, you have belief in yourself that you know you can figure things out, you can handle challenges, but you know that you don't always have the tools or let's say the knowledge at a certain time to know everything or to know it well. And that's actually what we, he's talking about in this book, would want to strive towards is having this confident humility. 
I believe in myself, but I know that there's so much I don't know or so much for me to learn. So I want to keep learning. I want to think about what I think I know, not try to just take things for granted that this is fact or I know this for sure. Reevaluate things, rethink things, as the title of the book says, think again, and to approach things with this confident humility. And I really admire that. And I think it's something important for us to all strive for is to have that confident humility and realize that saying I don't know something is not a sign that you lack confidence or that you don't know anything. It actually very often is a thing that the most intelligent, smart people do is they get that there's a lot that they don't know. Something I try to keep in mind on this show, um, but also something even with my clients being aware of that, that yes, you want to show competence to feel that they know they are in good hands if you're you know, treating someone, but that you don't know everything and even show that human side of yourself too, that of course you make mistakes, you struggle with things no matter who you are. Uh, and I think this confident humility is important. I see it in all cultures, and especially online now, that we're drawn towards people that just make everything sound simple. They tell you, here are the three reasons why this happens. I know exactly how to fix this issue, and this is how. And we're drawn to that. And especially online, these things get more attention. People have short attention spans. They want to get certainty. These things get shared more. And unfortunately, you see a lot more of these things become popular online, where people take complex issues and make it seem like it's so easy when it actually is not. It's not that easy to say, this is the way to make every relationship work. It would be nice if someone could tell you that, but it's just not the truth. It's not um, capturing the complexity of the issue. And so even when we look to who we want to call experts, we want to recognize that we can be fooled by their arrogance, thinking they know something and it feels good to be in their hands when they come off that way, but that that usually means they aren't telling us the full picture and they're kind of duping us, tricking us into thinking they understand something fully and are going to make us understand it when really they're not. So I I really do think it's something to be aware of. We are drawn to that sense of certainty because uncertainty creates some anxiety. When we're not sure about something, it doesn't feel good. We like to be certain. Okay, I know for sure. For example, he's a bad guy. He's a bad, you know, he's a good guy. That's it. There's no sometimes he's good, sometimes bad. Just, just That's more simple. When the truth of the matter is people are much more complex than that. Or all of her ideas are good and all of her ideas are bad. That's it. It's like, no, everyone can have very good ideas, but even that person you think is very smart will have some bad ideas or will be wrong. I do this show. I try to be careful about what I talk about and being aware that I share what things that I know, or I I do share my opinions, of course, but even still, I know that I make mistakes, or even if I hear a show from five years ago, I might disagree completely or slightly disagree with what I'm saying, and I would even want that to some degree, that I continue to learn. Um, A great quote in the book from Ray Dalio, if you don't look back at yourself and think, wow, how stupid I was a year ago, then you must not have learned much in the last year. I thought that was such a great quote. Uh, If you really look back a year ago and think, yeah, everything I knew last year or everything I know now I knew a year ago, then what did you do in this last year in learning, rethinking, becoming more wise? So you should look back a year ago. Now, maybe it's dramatic to say how stupid I was. Maybe you will in some areas of life, but you might not think you were stupid, but I think it points, illustrates that point that you should look back and think, oh, wow, like I thought this, I know a lot more about it because I've learned and reflected. And it actually shouldn't be a bad thing. You should feel bad if you haven't 
grown and, and become more knowledgeable. Um, you know, related to this idea of an authority knowing things, in the, again, all cultures, but Persian culture, Iranian culture, we're really um, very much stuck on this, that if someone is an expert on something, they're always right. We never question them. They are perfectly knowledgeable about the issue, and that's it. There's no questions asked. And when I was doing my first internship during my um, graduate school program, I was at the USC Student Counseling Center. And in one of our training videos, they had us watch uh, this tape, this video about students from different cultures and things they've experienced to help us become more culturally competent, sensitive, aware of what international students might be experiencing. So if we are treating them at the counseling center, just some things to be aware of. And, and I'll never forget there was an Iranian student. And so first one of the things he said was, you know, I was surprised when I saw people eating in class because in my country you would never be, you know, eating in class. That would be disrespectful. And then later they, you know, they had another clip of him, which I thought was um, really interesting. And I kind of laughed that everyone else was kind of paying attention. But he said, you know, I was so shocked that in one of my classes, a student asked the professor a question and the professor said, you know what? I'm not sure about that. Let me go look into it and I'll come back to you next class uh, and explain it. And he said he was just shocked. He couldn't believe that the professor said, I don't know. And he even said, in my country, even if the professor doesn't know, they'll just still say an answer to show that they know because they can't show that they don't know uh, everything. And I almost laughed and everyone else, in the, you know, as good therapists are kind of like paying, yes, oh, okay, interesting. That's something I should be aware of. But I was kind of laughing because I do think that's funny, but it's true that we're so used to the authorities having to say they know everything that they should never acknowledge they don't know something, um, which is really a huge uh, problem. And it's not the truth. No one knows everything about something. And if they tell you they do, they just either don't realize how much they don't know or they're trying to trick you. And so you should be aware of that. Uh, even, you know, he shared this story. It was really interesting. Um, so my brother Parham, he read this book uh, the week before me. And he told me this uh, story in the book. It was kind of a short, just a couple paragraphs, but this uh, British physicist, Andrew Lynn. So he published this big discovery in a prestigious science journal, the world's most prestigious science journal. He got a lot of attention for it about something about how a planet could orbit a neutron star. Here's one of those very clear cases where I can be aware of what I don't know. I've heard these terms like neutron star. I even like this Muse song called Neutron Star Collision, but do I really understand what that means? No. Um, but nonetheless, he was going to give a talk months later on this paper. However, he recognized that he had made a mistake. He didn't realize that the Earth, or in his calculations, didn't adjust for the fact that the Earth moves in an elliptical orbit, um, not a circular one. And so he was very wrong. And what he did in front of hundreds of colleagues, as uh, Adam Grant describes in the book, he walked into that ballroom stage and he admitted his mistake. So he basically gave a confession. Look, I'm getting all this attention for this paper or this discovery, but I was wrong. I made a mistake. And the audience gave him a standing ovation. They recognized that one of the astrophysicists said it was the most honorable thing I've ever seen. They knew how hard it was, and maybe a lot of other scientists, I'm sure they have done this, where something like this has happened, but the attention they're getting, the accolades, um, they're becoming a prominent scientist. They don't want to lose that. They might try to cover it up, and it happens all the time. And it's such an interesting thing, because a scientist should be about advancing knowledge, 
and understanding of things. And if you find something wrong, clearly we see what's happening is people are, it's more about them than what they're doing, which we all can fall prey to. But it was very uh, noble of this scientist, the British physicist, Andrew Lynn, to say, you know what, I messed up. I made this mistake. And we're often afraid that if we admit our mistakes, people won't like us, people will judge us, but it's actually usually not the case. People respond well when we acknowledge, you know what, I got this wrong. I made a mistake here. And so I thought that was a really interesting um, story there. So uh, as I mentioned before, when we sometimes talk about certain issues, we think we have to be so confident. So right now, if you ask people, what should we do about opening schools? People will have some really, they're passionate, which you can understand, parents of children, teachers, there's a lot of people that have a lot invested in what happens in these decisions. But at times, because of those feelings, we might strongly state, we know the answer, but it's really more our feeling about it. But we say, no, no, we, I know this is the right way. And so, you know, we have to look at something he talked about, how we identify ourselves. Unfortunately, many people and all of us essentially can identify ourselves with our beliefs, even things like I'm a political, like I'm a Democrat or a Republican. It's part of our identity. Um, or I'm, you know, free market or I'm socialist or I'm this. And we declare it as part of our identity and that could be a problem. What we want to do is actually identify ourselves with values, things like um, justice or um, helping others or things we want to do to make people, um, you know, make the world a better place in different ways. The values are more important than certain beliefs or ideologies. When we have ideologies, we get ourselves into trouble. Even, uh, you know, I've talked about this before. We talk, you know, maybe you've heard a lot about identity politics, which is where we, people say, some people like it, some people don't. There's, again, schools of thought on this and strong beliefs about should we talk about races and racism and male, female, transgender, these things. Are we getting too focused on those types of um, demographic types of things, which is important. But I think what might be even more important than looking at that is how much you identify with your politics or that type of identity politics, how much of your identity is what you believe. Because when it's tied into what you believe is who you are, you're afraid to challenge it because if I challenge, if you say I am a Democrat and then I say, well, here's some things about what you're saying that might not be true or some ideas about that might not support what you're talking about, it can feel like I'm attacking you at your core rather than just something you think or you believe. So we want to be aware of how much we identify with our beliefs and not everything you think things will come to your mind do you have to fully believe as some kind of absolute truth it's just something you've thought about okay i think you know this is what i, I feel like this could be a good okay i'm learning something new and we have to recognize our biases okay i like you know when it comes to taxes i feel like oh, i always want it to be lower so you know someone else might think i realize i have this kind of a bias or i feel this way rather than thinking it means it's some kind of a truth recognizing that actually these are just the things I think and believe. And if I get new information, I'm going to update my beliefs and the things that I think. But that doesn't mean I was bad to be wrong. All of us right now think things that some of them will be true. Some of them will be totally wrong. Some of them will be a little bit wrong and need to be updated. Um, but we hopefully will maintain that spirit of curiosity and wanting to learn. And the first piece of that is recognizing that I might not know everything that I think I do, that I have to be open to recognizing that sometimes I might be wrong and we have to give that up. Um, so after the break, I'm going to talk a bit more about 
when we're trying to talk to people about issues. So the first section of the book, which I focused a lot on so far, is how we want to rethink things again and recognize issues that might get in the way of our own rethinking. But then later in the book, he talks about how we can use these tools or be aware of this when it comes to talking to other people. How do we help others to think again? How do we help others explore different things and have those conversations, which can be difficult, but how can we make them a little bit easier? So I'll continue talking about Think Again by Adam Grant. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book, Think Again by Adam Grant. Again, uh, highly recommend the book. So um, I focus on the first, basically third of the book, uh, maybe a little bit more than that. That was about thinking again internally or individually. Then it gets into talking to others about um, things and issues, which is a big one. People ask a lot about, okay, my friends believe this, um, whether it's conspiracy theories or opposing political views, how do I talk to them about it? Now, first and foremost, one thing we have to recognize even before I get to that is that your mindset, and we've all been there, I've been there too, is we're thinking, okay, I want to talk to my friend. I'm right. They are wrong. So how can I get them to realize they are wrong, basically, and change their mind? And so if we enter a conversation with that mindset, that's problematic. And even as the title of the book implies, think again. First of all, approaching a conversation in that way, but even in being so sure that you are right and they are wrong. I think if you enter a conversation that way, you're not really having a conversation. You're basically just trying to make them think like you. And you're going to think the conversation is a success if they think like me. If they don't, something went really wrong and I'm unhappy about it. So that's the first thing. And even he didn't say that in the book at all. He, I, he wouldn't, I can't imagine him saying something like that with how he was writing. But sometimes when he was saying to talk to someone, um, it, it could come off that way. Like, you know, you are... Um, the one who is right. And so you have to convince someone to, to, to change their mind. But anyway, so he talks about people who are things like good at debate or debating and what they do. And so a lot of times when we think of having a conversation with someone, we think I have to overpower them. And that's how we approach debates a lot of the time. I'm going to show you that I'm right and I'm smarter than you. But actually, when you have debates with people, again, not just because you want them to think you are right, but really to make the conversation go better, you actually don't want to just push at them so hard. What usually helps is to first actually recognize what you might agree on. And so this is true if we're talking about debates in a professional type of sense, um, or if you're talking about political issues with a friend, or if your partners, husband and wife, uh, spouses having a conversation, rather than trying to prove why you're so right and they're so wrong, try to start with what you both actually might agree with, or if you both have the same values. Oftentimes I work with families and, you know, the parents are trying to get their teenager to study. How do we make him study more? How do we get them to do um, more work or, you know, get good grades? And what you and then the parents start putting these rules and imposing, you know, you have to do this. If you get a bad grade, we'll do that. And oftentimes I try to shift the paradigm if I have everyone together and say, look, I think you all want for um, your child to get good grades. You do. And also your uh, child does. It's not just that 
you want them to good grades and they want bad grades. You actually all want the same thing. Let's see where we have common ground and start from there and create something that works for everyone rather than think we have to convince him to study or it's about you or about him or about her. It's all of us. So if you're talking to someone, let's say you believe in one thing about some topic they believe on the other, rather than just saying, unfortunately, what we're seeing now is you're so stupid, you're crazy. How can you think that? I have to show you how dumb you are. You're not going to get very far having that. And that's what happens. It just gets ugly. You don't convince each other of anything. You just like each other less by the end of the conversation. That's the only thing that's going to change is your opinion of that other person, not your opinion about the issue. Um, But if you actually show some level of, I want to understand, I want to show where we have common ground or talk about where we have common ground and see if I can get a better sense of why you think even the way you do. Explain it to me rather than just telling them they are so wrong. Um, And he talks about arguments, how they could be a good thing. He said there's something called like the, you know, there was a movie, The Fight Club, where he says the good fight club, the first rule, avoiding an argument is bad manners. And so we can actually find that if we approach them the right way, we should want to engage in conversations. We should want to have these healthy debates where we can learn from each other. We can share our ideas and actually in sharing as I get to experience on the show, when I talk about my ideas, I'm thinking about them out loud. I sometimes can refine them over time as well. So I benefit from that, but I don't get that this aspect of it when I'm talking to, of course, the show in the show context. But then the other person shares their perspective. You learn from them as well. And actually, you might change some of your ideas. You might understand your own ideas better. It'll be a good process if we can have healthy debates and conversations about issues, we'd actually all be growing and getting better. Unfortunately, what we're seeing is polarization, which is when we get more entrenched in our own views and believe them more strongly and feel like anything that challenges them is really negative. Um, That unfortunately leads to more polarization and distance rather than coming together. So we can actually try to recognize that we can have respectful um, disagreements. Even actually he had a, a, you know, cited some research saying that for parents, you know, we talk about parents arguing in front of their kids. Of course, ugly fights like yelling, screaming arguments, and hopefully you don't do that, period. But you don't want to do that in front of your kids. Um, and, but the research was saying, uh, and I'm quoting, it said, what matters is how respectfully parents argue, not how frequently. So, you know, if you're talking in front of your kids, even having some healthy disagreements in a calm way, because I say calm, sometimes when you're talking to your friends, you might get a little bit heated, but especially for your kids, when you get too heated, they can get worried or concerned. But if you're having some disagreements, that actually can be okay. And it's something I experience working with families, especially with Iranian families, is conflict and anger become these very black and white things. You either hold it in, hold it in, hold it in, or it explodes. So we don't have, um, you know, these conversations that we should be having. Things are bothering us. We hold it in. And then when we finally do, we've held it in too long. We have some kind of a ugly fight um, that's worse. And then unfortunately, that reinforces the idea that, see, we're better off holding these things in. Um, but uh, rather we should have the conversations in a healthy way. Disagreement is not bad. Um, there was some really good quote. I'll probably have a hard time finding it because I didn't uh, mark it. Um, but that disagreement is actually something that is natural and normal and we should expect for it to happen. How could there not be disagreements in this world? And so we should recognize that if we're avoiding disagreement, we're avoiding having open and honest conversation and we're avoiding um, learning from one another, which is not good at all. So I hope that people will recognize that, that if we um, don't 
open ourselves to disagreement. We actually don't learn from each other. We don't actually uh, get better at understanding things, and we need to to be open to that. So there was a big section about um, talking about things, and actually he was mentioning how there's a difference between task conflict and relationship conflict when we're talking about um, different things. So when you have task conflict, that means, let's say we're working on a project together, we can disagree about how to do things and express those very openly. And that's actually good. We don't want to hide those from one another and not share those with one another. Um, Relationship conflict is when people are fighting about, you know, do you like me? Who's good? Who's bad? Who's being preferred? Um, Who is the one that is, you know, liked more? We're making things personal. That's not good conflict. And that doesn't actually help. And when they looked at groups, they found that um, groups that actually had more task conflict did well, but groups that had more relationship conflict, if you're a group trying to work on a project and you're so focused on who likes who and who's, you know, liked by the boss or things like that, um, unfortunately, you don't do very well. So that was an interesting distinction for me. We, you know, we talk about that conflict then can be good, but when you're especially working on something, task conflict, which is focused on whatever it is that you're working on, that can be very helpful and necessary. Actually, that's actually how you make progress. Relationship conflict is not good. Uh, I found the quote, it's from Oscar Wilde. Uh, Arguments are extremely vulgar for everybody in good society holds exactly the same opinions. So um, it's very, of course, there's a lot of sarcasm in that quote that uh, we, it's interesting that we think of arguments as so bad, but it doesn't make sense because as he's ironically saying, it's not that everyone holds the same opinion. So of course there needs to be arguments and disagreements. That's actually healthy and natural and we need to have that. Uh, He also talked about in the book, as I've touched on, how we tend to make issues binary. You're either you know, pro-life or pro-choice. You either believe in um, global warming or you think it's all a hoax. When really these things are much more complex. So he talks about the binary bias, that we think that issues are just black and white. There's just two ways to look at it. And we think that everyone falls into those camps. And that's something else that polarization is doing is you feel like either have to be fully this or fully that. I have to be, you know, guns should be allowed to be carried anywhere, anytime. So no gun laws or take away all the guns. Like it has to be one or the other rather than seeing there could be more nuance, something in between. Even with climate science, he was saying how people think there's just two camps, but actually there's more like six camps or six levels from um, totally receptive to doing something about climate change to completely denying it, but that's a small proportion more people fall in the middle. And even then within those groups, there's more people. There's more of a spectrum than black and white. It's not that um, things are so black and white in that way. Things are much more gray. Um, And so the book, you know, also talked about something called psychological safety in groups. So what psychological safety means is how comfortable can an individual be if they're part of this group to, first of all, they feel that they're going to be respected. Um, they feel that they don't have to uh, hold things in. If they disagree with the boss, let's say, do they have to hold it in or can they share what's on their mind? Um, so uh, in if we have a climate of respect, trust, and openness in which people can raise concerns and suggestions without fear of repraisal, this is psychological safety and this leads to a learning culture and so that's what we want to have and even he shares how in nasa we would think in nasa these are some of the best scientists in the world so they should only be thinking 
from a scientific or scientist lens, but he was showing how sadly there have been some, obviously, some notoriously um, tragic events like the Challenger um, space shuttle, which exploded, and also I think it was Columbia as well, not that long ago. And at times it was because they were not really looking at the issues carefully enough or it was hard for people to dissent. This is also something we've seen, for example, in plane crashes where they were able to see that what sometimes is a problem is that culturally, sometimes the co-pilot can feel like, going back to some of these issues of authority and you shouldn't question the authority, that even if they saw something was wrong, they couldn't tell or they felt they couldn't tell the pilot that there's some issue with what they're doing. And sadly, the result really was about life and death, that it was more likely to be a plane crash. And that can seem mind-boggling to think that because of cultural issues of things like politeness and respecting authority that someone would not say something to challenge the the pilot i think in the persian culture you might not be that surprised when you hear something like this we see how much we can over the top put emphasis on how much you respect an authority or someone who's older than you that you should never question them no matter what and sadly the results can be catastrophic but we want to do is create a culture where people can bring up a concern. You want their eyes and ears to actually contribute to the knowledge and understanding. This has also been a big movement in hospitals where nurses and other staff can question or challenge the surgeon or head doctor uh, before it would kind of, there was definitely, and there still is, I'm sure, some level of almost like a military hierarchy where whatever the surgeon says goes, even if other people might have some concerns, you, you better not bring them up or the surgeon might react or snap at you. This is where that issue of psychological safety comes in. Psychological safety doesn't mean we don't have standards, we don't care, everyone should be relaxed and comfortable. No, we still have high standards, but there should be that climate of respect and trust, but also you should be allowed to challenge the authority. And this actually helps a group do better, to get better results. So if you are the leader of some kind of group, whatever that might be, you want to make sure that you actually uh, make this clear to the people you're working with that they can challenge you. You want them to question what you are saying. Again, it doesn't mean you don't know. You're going to get things wrong. You should want people to challenge you, to question you so that you can grow. Um, So, and the book even gets into things like education, how we can be aware of how we teach our kids. Of course, it's complicated, you know, for example, to tailor everything to every child. That's ideal, and we can go more towards that. But even things about textbooks and how we tend to think, even all of us when you're in school, if something's in the textbook, it must be true. But there are some teachers that even were showing, to prove the point, showing older textbooks to children for them to recognize that how wrong it could be. So we don't want to be a passive, um, receptor of of knowledge. So I, I mentioned that Eric Fromm talked about in the book um, to have or to be. Um, when you're reading a book, rather than just being passive, meaning that you just you know okay whatever this author is saying, I'm just gonna put it into my mind and not think about it. You should think about reading like a conversation that you're reading the book, but as you're reading, you're thinking about it, you're even questioning, do I agree with this? Do I not agree with this? Does that make sense to me? Um, How else do I think this thing might be true or different? So we're not just passively taking in information. Now, when you're the authority, a lot of times it's easier if the people you're teaching, the people you're working with don't question you. And this is sometimes what teachers want. Okay, just shut up and listen. 
Don't ask questions. Now, you could do that because it's easier for you, but you should recognize that your students will be paying a price if they are not given the opportunity to question you, to challenge you, to think about things. So if you're teaching a class or have some kind of position of power, there does need to be at times some level of authority that you have with your position to just make things run more smoothly. You know, if you're on a, a plane, it's not that everyone's flying the plane. We need a pilot to be um, taking control of that. But of course, if they have a crew, we hope they can work together. Uh, so you need to have that authority, let's say even as a teacher, that you're going to be the one running the class. But it shouldn't be that everything you say cannot be challenged as if it's somehow, um, you know, holy and coming from some special book, even sometimes the book you're reading from might need to be updated and changed. So I think that's something important that I've always thought about that. But when I, I read that from Eric Fromm a couple years ago, I try to keep that in mind when I read the books. I'm not just passively taking in the information. I'm reading it, thinking about it, rethinking about it. And that helps me get a lot more out of that process. Um, and I also try to think about and rethink the ideas I have. As I mentioned, I talk about a lot of different issues on this show from um, parenting to relationships to individual psychology, self-care. And I try to be open. I'm sure there's times where I won't always be, but to challenge myself to make sure, do I know what I think I know? Where do I get that from? How do I understand that? And how can I keep learning about that? Or sometimes I realize someone will ask me a question. I'm like, I don't really know much about that. And I'll make a note to go study a bit more about that because I need to continue to learn and to grow. And I hope to always do that. So um, this book was a great reminder. Again, I do have to wrap up the show, but um, Think Again by Adam Grant. I highly, highly recommend it. And we all need to be aware that we, as the book says, the power of knowing what you don't know. We don't know as much as we usually think we do, and that's okay. Um, even a knowledgeable person doesn't know a lot. And, and this book does a great job of reminding us the benefits of thinking again. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dolok. We have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.